Good morning. It's better when you have the joy of bifocals. Angles mean everything. I want to read from Genesis and uh, chapter 27, beginning right at the end of chapter 27, verse 46, and then taking us through a story which those of us who've had the privilege of being brought up in Christian, a Christian context have, have known from a, being little children in Sunday school. Genesis 27, verse 46. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a, a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land given to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and, and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac, so he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth and the daughter of Ishmael's, Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set, up, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, 
I will give you a tenth. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We used to sing, do you remember that vaguely? Yeah. yeah. I can't be the only person who used to sing it. Yes. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. Uh, of course, it's total nonsense. Like many things that uh, we teach our children, uh, it's actually teaching them heresy. Uh, we don't climb Jacob's ladder. It was the angels of God that ascended and descended the, the ladder. Nothing to do with where, uh, what we're meant to do. Just thought I'd throw that one in as a, you know. So the wedding took place. We were driving home at the time. Uh, put it on the radio to hear a bit. Tell you the radio commentary was awful. Uh, and they waited, of course, waited until the congregation sang a hymn. And then the commentator prattled over the top because obviously nobody would be possibly interested in the words of the hymn. And, and so it went on. We've caught up with a bit of it since, and uh, the bride looked wonderful. I want to give you a, a thought, because I'll come back to it later. Can you imagine saying to Prince Harry, now, Harry, it's important, it's important that your focus is Megan. You mustn't focus on any experience, because that's irrelevant. Just focus on Megan, because those who chase experiences don't really understand properly. It's nonsense. Because to chase as a groom after the wife, the experience of her is part of the deal. You can't actually have that kind of relationship without deep experience. I want to come back to that later, because today, I'm reliably informed that uh, Regent Chapel don't take a lot of notice of it. Today is... Pentecost, Whit Sunday. It is, indeed, it's Whit Sunday. The day where the church uh, traditionally celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit to those disciples. Or it's all laid out in Acts chapter 2. And I want to come back to the reality of that later. Because when Andy asked me to preach on this passage, uh, I got quite excited because it fits beautifully. He didn't know it, but it fits beautifully uh, with Pentecost. We are picking up a series, apparently, but I wasn't here when the series happened. But we're picking up a series in the book of Genesis. And uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a sort of backdrop on it. Uh, those of you who know will remember that God called Abraham, or Abram as he was then, out of the blue. He called him to leave where he was, to travel until God said stop, and when God said stop, to settle there. God promised the land would belong to him and his descendants, who would be more numerous than, than the sand on the seashore. And interestingly, than the st stars in the sky as well, which I thought was quite appropriate, really. He had many adventures as he sought to obey what God said to him. He got it right sometimes, he got it wrong sometimes. The promise was continued through his son Isaac. And one of the fascinating things about Isaac in the Old Testament is that the Bible doesn't say much about him at all. Uh, in fact, all it really tells you about him, apart from the children, all that sort of stuff, is that he dug a lot of wells. Isaac had Esau and Jacob. Hmm. Esau was born first, Isaac and Rebekah were the parents, and Jacob's name means deceiver. There's not a lot of parents who call their children Jacob understand that, but that is actually the meaning of the name Jacob, deceiver. And uh, Jacob lives up to his name. Uh, he, uh, he stitches up Esau by getting him to swap his birthright for lentil stew. He then steals the blessing of the firstborn by sheer deceit, with the cunning accomplice 
being his mother. And so we pick up the story where, where we started reading together. Esau wants revenge. Rebekah wants to protect Isaac and finds a way to get him sent to his uncle Laban. So basically she says to Isaac, Hey Isaac, Jacob needs a proper wife. Not like these monstrous other wives you've taken and the women around here who are all Hittites. He needs a proper wife. So Jacob, why don't you send him off to find a wife in my uncle's house? Jacob says that's not a bad idea. Sends him off and just by sheer coincidence, Jacob manages to escape the wrath of Esau by doing so. Uh, Rebecca, whatever else she is, is a very cunning, cunning woman. On the way to Paddan Aram in Haran, where Abraham had come from in the first place, and where Uncle Laban lives, on the way there, while still in the promised land area, Jacob has this encounter with God. As far as we can tell, it's the first encounter that Jacob has with God. And it affects, I was going to say transform, ultimately it does transform the whole of his life. But it takes a while to get there. The place was Luz, it became known as Bethel, which means house of God. Yeah, what a surprise. So what do we learn? The story's simple enough. Yeah, blah, 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 on the way to Laban, oh, 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 and then goes on his way again. What's it about? What relevance does it have to Christian people today, to the Christian church today? What, what do we learn from, from God's actions, from Jacob's actions, and from the, the whole God encounter? The first thing is, is simply this. God is sovereign. God chooses who he wants for his greater purpose. If you are looking for a likely candidate to be the one through whom God will, would fulfill his promise to Abraham, Jacob would not be on your list. It isn't that he wouldn't be top of your list, he wouldn't be on your list at all. He was a nasty piece of work, utterly self-centered, utterly self-absorbed, deceitful, cheating. This was the man that God decided sovereignly would be the one through whom he would fulfill his purpose. We don't like that, do we? We don't. There's a certain, I was going to say, British fairness about us, which says, yeah, come on, you know. Other countries can be fair as well. I just need to point that out. God sometimes chooses people who seem undeserving even to us. He always chooses people who are undeserving because we all are. Not one of us can stand before God and say, hey God, send me because I deserve it. Hey God, fulfill your promises through me because look what a good boy I am. Not one of us can be like that. But even by our standards, Jacob... God, you sure? That's crazy. Now, if you know your church history at all over the years, you'll realize that this has been worked out in a number of ways through a number of people. People whom God has chosen to be significant in the life of the church over the generations have been oddballs, some of them. Martin Luther was an interesting character. From what we can gather about Luther, he was, he was obsessive to, to the nth degree. And... It had to be an obsessive who would care that much about the finer points of doctrine being restored to the church. His 95 theses that he nailed to the church, church in Wittenberg, 95. 
You know, this wasn't a little poster, dunk, 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 you know, come and eat at Fred's. This is 95 statements about God that he nails to the church. Is that normal? But God used him. God used him incredibly powerfully to restore the heart of the gospel of grace to the church, which had been lost. One of my heroes in the Christian church, by now you should know this, is William Booth, because of my upbringing in the Salvation Army. William Booth is an amazing character. How God used that guy. But it's simply, I think it's simply true to say, William Booth was great to work for and impossible to work with. In other words, if you lined up behind his vision and his direction of what he felt was right, everything went smoothly. But he wasn't the sort of guy to delegate, well, he delegated, but only under his authority. Because he had, he was possessed by a vision of what could be. And God took that and God used that to his, his purpose. I wonder if you can think of any unlikely people that God has used. When I was at Bible college, I won't, I won't give any names. When I was at London Bible College, there were some interesting characters there. And in the history of what's happened since, I scratch my head sometimes and think, God, how on earth did you use that person to do that? How could you take someone who was that arrogant and that full of themselves at college and suddenly, through their ministry, have such a big impact on the church? How does that work? And the answer is simply this, God knows. God knows who he wants. He knows who he wants in each position. He knows who he wants in every circumstance of life. We sometimes look at somebody and say, if you look at your non-Christian friends and family and all that sort of stuff, we tend to grade them, don't we? We tend to go, well, that person's sort of almost like a Christian without knowing it. You know? And that person, I can't imagine ever coming to faith. Why do we do that? Because we know from Scripture that God takes the unlikely and turns them inside out and makes them into his. I mean, we've just finished the series on... In Acts, one great illustration of what I'm talking about is Paul. Boy, was he strange. But what a man of God in the end. So God, God's called us sovereign. He chooses. We don't. We don't. Now, how does that affect how you live your life day by day? For me, now, I'm retired. Hey. <laughs> the fact that in that time we've had a, uh, <coughs> the back of the garage converted, so there's been building work, we've had a full rewire in the house, we're waiting for the body to be replaced, and we have to keep going down to see our elderly, uh, elderly mothers, and then my father has died, and all sorts of stuff has happened in that time. doesn't make me feel that retired yet, but I am retired. Yeah. So... Is it legitimate, therefore, for me to say to God, God, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to serve you all these years. Uh, now, I, I'm very happy, God, and this is true, by the way, I'm very happy, God, for other people to take responsibility, and I'll just use my gifts here and there where I can. And Is that legitimate? And the answer, of course, is not. If that's what God wants of me, hallelujah. But what if he wants something different? Major Alistair Smith of the Salvation Army, I, I knew a Major Alistair Smith, his father, some of you have heard this story before, his father was also called Major Alistair Smith, was 93 years old 
when he became convicted by God that the Salvation Army hadn't yet started in South Africa. So he went to Salvation Army headquarters and he asked if he could go and pioneer the work in South Africa and they sent him away saying, don't be silly. But he wouldn't go away and he kept knocking on the door and knocking on the door until they thought, well, he can't do any harm. So they sent him with two younger officers to South Africa where for three years he pioneered the work of the Salvation Army before he died. And the work of the Salvation Army took root in that land. For all those of you who are like me, retired, you're now beginning to feel just a bit uncomfortable and think, ooh. But God takes people out of their comfort zone. He takes us out of the workplace. Or, or even more fascinatingly, he sometimes takes people who long to serve him in full-time ministry and says, well, actually, I want you in the workplace. That's where I want you. And he closes the doors to, to other things. God is sovereign. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening? Second thing I want to point out from this story is this. The God encounter needs to be worked out. We finished the series in Acts, and I've talked about Paul, but we sometimes think that when Paul became a Christian, there was this kind of great, and suddenly he was off on his missionary journeys and all that sort of stuff. He started preaching early, but he, he toddled off to Antioch. And he was there for years, learning and growing and developing in his faith and in his understanding before God called him to go with Silas, sorry, with Barnabas on missionary journeys. It didn't just happen. It has to be worked out. Jacob has this encounter with God and as a result he resolves to be a follower of God and God will be his God. But that didn't suddenly change his nature. I don't want to steal the thunder of other preachers, but I'll give you, uh, let you a little secret. He doesn't suddenly become a good guy. It takes a while. There's yet more deceit, yet more cheating to be done by him and to be done to him before the ongoing changing work of God is fully complete in him. And he becomes Israel. That's his name at the end. He is Israel. And through him, all the tribes of Israel are born. But it takes a long time. Many years ago, I was at a... Uh, it was the Albert Hall. And there was a, a charismatic uh, praise gathering. I was still at Bible College. And there was, I won't tell you who it was, because he became well-known and would be ashamed of what he said now, because I, I, I know him quite well, good preacher. But he stood up and said... There is no place for discipline in the Christian life. Uh, you've got to understand, those were the days when, you know, the Holy Spirit does just go with the flow and all that sort of stuff. And, and part of it was true, but some of it, some of it they lost the plot. <coughs> Everything about the Christian life is discipline. <coughs> the Bible tells us that God disciplines those he loves. The Bible tells us that every circumstance and every experience that God allows you to go through, he wants to use for his purpose. That doesn't mean he causes every difficult circumstance and heartache. That's a different issue. But he allows them. And when they come to us and when the heartaches come and when the trials come and the burdens come and, and the confusion comes, the question is not, God, why are you allowing this? The question is, God, what are you teaching me through this? That I can grow, that I can become 
the man or woman of God you want me to be. The changing work of God can take time. And it has to be proved through life's experiences. I guess that's why there aren't many people come out of uh, the various colleges and go straight into Christian ministry. Um, or they don't go straight from school into college and straight into ministry. I did go straight from school into college, but then spent years doing other things before I was in ministry. I'm not saying it can't happen. Um, Spurgeon himself uh, was pastoring a church in his teens, I believe. Um, so, you know. But generally, generally, that thing when you're young, which you think is overrated, and when you're old, you wish you'd learned more from, that thing called experience is part of the deal. God hones us. He changes us. He knocks the rough edges off us. He, he teaches us his way. His way. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? I wonder what circumstance you're going through at the moment that's hard. You will be. There'll be an aspect of, of your life, an aspect of my life, which is hard. Sometimes harder than others. Are you teachable? Have you learned yet how God can stop you being resentful and bring you to being thankful? Have you learned that? However, all that's important, all right? God's sovereign. The encounter with God needs to be worked out but I want to get to the bit which I've been excited about ever since Andy told me I was preaching on this. All right? This is, this is my territory we begin to tread on now. Jacob decided that where he had slept and dreamt of this staircase going to heaven was the house of God. Wow. And he tells us why he believed it was the house of God. And there are three particular issues. One is the presence of God was there. The second is that he described it as the gate of heaven. The stairway was there. <clears throat> and the third one is, it was awesome. And we sometimes think the, um, the word awesome is an Americanism that's crept into the English language. It is actually an old English word which the Americans have kept more than we have and have just, we've just rediscovered. Uh, if you wanted to use proper English for the same word, you would say, it is awful. But we don't use the word awful like that anymore, do we? If you think about it, awful simply means full of awe. Yeah? So we use the word awesome. Later on, now listen carefully here, later on the children of Israel carried this tabernacle, this tent, and the Ark of the Covenant around with them. As they traveled from slavery into freedom. Yeah? What was it about that? Well, that was the presence of God. That Ark of the Covenant, that, that tabernacle, that tent represented for the people the very presence of God amongst them. It was because he was with them that they were different. It was because God was their God and they were his people that the people around were terrified. And they knew that. Look at the attempts that were made later on to try and get, get the ark off them. You know? This is God. And what were the hallmarks of God's presence at the time of the tabernacle? The presence of God 
It was the gate of heaven because that's where the sacrifices were brought. And it was awesome. You still with me? Still alive, right? Okay. Then that becomes <coughs> incarnate, and that's wrong word because flesh, it becomes sort of stabilized in Jerusalem, in the temple. The temple is eventually built. And the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. And it's placed there. And the temple becomes what represents for the people of Israel the, the holy, holy, holy reality of God among them. Yeah? The presence of God, the gate of heaven. That's awesome. Awesome. How do, how do you think Jacob felt when he woke up that morning? Do you think he woke up and thought, well, a bit of a weird dream, wasn't it? Oh, oh, this must be the house of God. Oh, right, okay, okay. I believe the hairs in the back of his neck were standing up. God's here. God's here. Hang on, just got to find me crib sheet. You see... The reality is, is simply this. In the New Testament, the Bible tells us that something has changed about where God can be found. The Bible tells us that God no longer lives in a temple that can be built with human hands. There's a new dwelling place of God because of what Jesus came to do. Do you know what that dwelling place of God? Well, of course you know what that dwelling place of God is, don't you? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. And Paul talking collectively to the church. There is a, a verse which... Uh, applies to the individual body as well. But Paul, uh, writing about the church collectively, says this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? Then, of course, there's that famous famous bit in 1 Peter, which I'll get to eventually. I really will. In 1 Peter, where... Peter talks about the church. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. According to the Bible, we are the temple of God. We are the house of God now, the church of Jesus Christ. And the hallmarks of that house of God ought to be exactly the same. The manifest presence of God amongst the people. 
the gate of heaven. And it's awesome. Come back to that in a moment. Did you notice? Did you notice how much preparation went into the wedding yesterday? You know, I, I heard somebody say that the uh, the bride's dress cost fifty thousand pounds, and somebody else said the bride's dress cost one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. And that was probably the only moment in the whole thing when I was thinking uh, there's something sick about that. You know, no piece of cloth could be worth that, regardless of who the designer is. But the preparation was immense. Did, did you see the interviews with the people who lined the long walk? Did you see them? Eagerly waiting for a glimpse of Harry and Meghan as they went past. Did you see them? Yeah. Did you see the excitement of the special guests who were straight outside? Weren't actually inside, but you know, oh, you know, they, they get it. And those who were actually invited to church itself. Wow. And then the media not quite knowing what to do with the sermon. I find that fascinating, you know. Oh, fiery American, right? Okay. But the preparation, the preparation, and the expectation, one of the reasons why that wedding went so well, because people had been expecting it go, to go well. Because people had prepared for it to go well. Okay? Now, we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, will manifest the presence of God in direct proportion to which we are continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that. According to the Bible, our task is to continually ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke, uh, Jesus says it in Luke, go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking. The one who asks receives. It's not automatic. Well, yes, I know when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you're born again in the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit fills your life. Yeah, 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 I understand all that. But in terms of the daily walk with God and being filled with the Spirit and equipped by Him in power for ministry, it's not automatic. God gives His Spirit to those who ask and He doesn't to those who don't in the terms I'm talking about. It's about expectation. It's about preparation. It's about not being content with the second rate and the ordinary. God forbid that anybody should walk into a gathering of the people of God and say, this is boring. Because if God is there and people experience the reality of God there, it cannot be boring. If so, we are camouflaging God. He is not boring. He's terrifying. He's wonderful. He's glorious. He's awesome. We're the gate of heaven. We're entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he has called together his people, his bride, his people to, to convey that gospel to be the ones through whom people encounter the living God, the one through whom people encounter the gospel of grace and hear that Jesus died for them, that the shed blood of Calvary is enough to save, enough to cleanse from sin, that people can be forgiven, people can be made whole, People can be redeemed and brought back from the depths of despair, even the unlikely ones, maybe especially the unlikely ones. We are the gate of heaven. How are people, how is this world going to hear about Jesus? And the answer is the church. God hasn't got a plan B. It's us. And awesome, 
Awesome, awesome, awesome. See, I believe our spiritual descendants are to be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Ever since I first went to Christian ministry, I've been gripped with a picture. It won't go away. It keeps coming back. When I say it won't go away, I don't mean it's always there. But it just keeps coming back. And the picture is of churches dotted all over this land and a queue of people stretching right down the road, as far as you can see, waiting for a spare seat. Because they want to be where God is. Because they know that's where life is. It's time to leave behind our small ambitions for the gospel and expect in faith a great and mighty harvest. But the awesome nature of God is reflected in who we are together. The awesome nature of God in this place, and I'm not talking about the building. We could lift ourselves up and cut the grass over there. It would still be the same place, all right? This awesome nature of God is there as we reflect him in the holiness of our own lives, as we reflect him in the authenticity of our relationships together. I do, and I, by that, I don't just mean we don't fall out with each other. I mean we build lives interlocking with each other so we're so interdependent we become the temple of God in every real sense. That's when people see God. God is in this place. And the awesome nature of God is revealed in our worship. Whatever the choice of songs, and people will always argue over that, well, argue. People always discuss, oh, I prefer this, I prefer that, I don't care. You take what's on offer and you bring every fiber of your being to worship the almighty creator of the universe. And as we worship, we bring the sacrifice of praise and we magnify his name. And the awesome nature of God becomes obvious to people. Now we can get trapped in all sorts of theology. We can get trapped, you know, and say, oh, are you saying that you have to have this experience and that experience and the other experience? I don't care in this respect about your theology. All I know is this, according to the Bible, the key to everything in terms of the Christian life and in terms of how the church functions is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church of God. And every time we keep the Holy Spirit at arm's length or we become suspicious of him, we hinder his work among us. That's not to say there aren't excesses and there aren't foolishnesses about it. Of course there are. But that which is worthwhile is what gets forfeited and the devil seeks to put off track. If it wasn't worthwhile, he wouldn't bother... This is, this is the house of God, people. As we meet together, this is the place where people come and, and, and they, bring, they bring their hurts and, and their tears and others come around them and, and pray into their lives and bring strength to them in the power of the Spirit. This is, this is the place where people bring their physical ailments and, and get prayed for that God would heal them. And we expect God to heal. And yeah, we know it doesn't always happen, but hey, guess what? I've discovered but it happens more often when you pray than when you don't. It's a strange thing, that. You know, this is the place. This is the place where we bring our, our joys, where something good's happened in our lives, and we know when we come and we share them, people will rejoice with us because whatever's going on in their own lives, they'll, they'll just be thrilled for us. This is the place. This is the place where people who've been rescued from darkness and rescued from sin and rescued from emptiness are shouting out as best we can, look at, look at what Jesus has done. Look at him, he's everything. This is the place. 
I love the church of Jesus Christ. Really, you know. When I pray and I think about the church, my heart beats faster. The, the capacity of what we are called to be and what we can be in God. Sometimes I'm reduced to tears by the church of Jesus Christ for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But oh, if only we could understand. This is the house of God. God is here. This is the gate of heaven. When we pray, the angels start about their business. When we pray, the angels are hurtling down those steps to carry out the bidding of God, hurtling back up again with a reply. Something like that, anyway. You know, this is the place. And this is the place where we get to encounter, and others need to get to encounter, the awesome, awesome nature of our holy, holy God. Over the years, I've known it happened a few times, People have said to me when they've eventually come into church and, and become Christians, they've said, you do realize uh, I came and stood outside the church and couldn't go in. A number of times I couldn't do it. And I said, oh, was that because you're nervous of what was going on in there? Because sometimes I can be. And they said, no. It's just that I knew there was something different in there. And I was afraid. Hallelujah. Oh, that the world would start being afraid of the church again. In the right sense. I'm going to pray. And then I've asked that uh, we sing a song that you won't know. <laughs> Do your best with it. I, I love the song. Absolutely love the song because it expresses for me what the church is meant to be. For the house of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you this Pentecost Sunday you're still pouring your spirit out upon your people. You're still identifying your church as your house. You still come to those with soft hearts. You still come to those who would seek you with all their hearts. You would still pour yourself out afresh in all our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, come fill this place, I pray. Help us rise to understand what our calling is and help us to be more authentic as the house of God. In Jesus' name, amen.